This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. saying oh lord as in you know god in heaven just purely something as as simple as that which is great but he's actually drawing notice to the fact that i am addressing the covenant god of israel there's an importance to that you're the covenant god of israel and here's your covenant people and they're being abused they've wicked leaders they're giving out wicked judgments against the people there's grave injustices There's terrible things that are going on. There's abuses of power. The people are, now we can read between the lines when he talks about the leaders are plundering the people. Maybe there was unfair taxes. Maybe there was unfair, uh, uh, you know, inheritance tax or or land tax or, or whatever. There was loads of things going on, which the Habakkuk seen as abuses of pillaging the people, of fleecing them, of taking advantage of them. They've become a laughingstock in some ways. The, the leaders of the people of Israel, we're not even talking about foreigners. We're not talking about the Babylonians, which are on the doorstep. We're not even talking about the Egyptians, who they'd made a pact with, which didn't really work out for them. We're talking about the actual people of God being abused by the leaders. And Habakkuk is going, but these are the people of God. Lord, can you not raise up leaders who'll do a good job, who will look after your people? The movers and the shakers of the nation had corrupted and perverted justice. There was no respect for the law of God or the God of the law. There was no respect by these leaders. Now, amongst the people, there may have been, there was a a remnant. There were some people who were sincere. But on the whole, there was a, a, a corruption that had spread throughout the land, which Habakkuk looked at and he fretted over. It actually says there that he was burdened. The very first one, the burden, which the prophet Habakkuk saw. He was burdened, heavily burdened for the people. And he looks and he calls out to God, the covenant God who's made a covenant with us. Look at all the land, look what's happening. And God replies, I'll raise up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. I'll raise them up and they'll come in like a tide. They'll sweep the land clean. They'll come over, they'll capture everything. They'll take the land. They'll defeat everyone that stands before them. They will cover the earth and possess dwelling places that were not theirs. They're proud and they're arrogant. They're full of their own power. But I'll let them, they'll come in and they'll, 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 they'll judge the land and they'll do their work. And Habakkuk is distressed at that even more. Boys of ears. I never thought Habakkuk was into lamentations, but it sounds a wee bit like it at times. He's going, oh no. The people of God are being abused by their leaders. Now the Chaldeans are going to come in and they're going to be even worse. These people are vicious. They're known for their aggressiveness. They're known for their military might and their military power. Don't you know, God, that, these, that we are your people? He actually goes on to say there... Um, uh, yeah, so yeah. Can, the, can you hold your tongue when the wicked devour those who are more righteous than them? God, was, he was just saying to God a few moments ago that the people are, are being led astray, they're being abused, and actually they're wicked, there's no justice. And here now, now he's saying to God, yeah, they might be bad, but listen, these guys are even worse. 
You can hear the, 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 the Habakkuk bouncing around a wee bit like a ball here. He doesn't know what's going on. He's going, like, these here Chaldeans are going to come in. He sees them as proud and arrogant. And, and actually, when you read on into, again, just reading in, ch- in chapter one there, they seen themselves as superior. We are the Babylonians, you know, the Chaldeans. You know, you, you think of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar and the big walls of the city. You think of him raising a statue one day. This is all down the line. But you can hear the atmosphere was, was, the opinion of themselves was already well established. They had such a high opinion of themselves. We are, you know, they're going to come in, God is saying, and Habakkuk's going like, this is terrible. I don't know what's going to happen. These people are going to come in. Besides them, all other nations are fish in the sea. We're to be scooped up in their big nets. We're insects to be squashed. They rejoice in the power of their armies, the might the mighty net that they cast out over the whole land. He even accuses them of worshiping their military. They worship their net that they cast out over the land. Violence is a God to them, which provides a sumptuous feast for their nation. So there's national turmoil. He's upset with what's happening to the people. He's upset what's happening to the the chosen people, the covenant people. And yet he's upset on an international scale as well with the surrounding nations, with Babylon coming in, and they're even worse than we are. Oh, this is just, this is just terrible. This is just, it actually says he goes and stands on the walls and he sits and waits for God's reply. It's a wee bit of an attitude to him, you know, bouncing around all over the show. I don't know, we don't even think you can imagine just a typical wee Jewish man, you know. <laughs> Oy vey, who's coming next? You know, he's upset, doesn't know what to do. And he goes on and he comes to Habakkuk chapter two and verse two. And I want to read this. Just, we'll just read verse two and three to begin with. And it says, then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end I, it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Go get a rock, get a hammer, get a chisel. This is something you're going to want to write down on a tablet. This is something you're going to, you're going to want to immortalize. This is something that is important for you to remember and for subsequent generations. See, the tablet represents something of permanence. There's a truth here that God's about to reveal to Habakkuk, which is important for Habakkuk to remember and for subsequent generations to remember. And it's also important for us to remember in this day and age and what we're going through in our lives. You can imagine Israel's about to go into, or Judah, excuse me, about to go into exile. They're about to be swept away. in a a short period of time after this, about to be taken off for years into exile. But he's carved into two tablets of stone, the vision that God had given him. I don't know how big the tablets were. I'd like to use my imagination and picture them as big, big things because I know the message is coming. We don't know what they were like, but there was something of permanence to what he was telling him. Something that he wanted him to remember and subsequent generations. You can imagine them going off into exile, can't you? You can imagine them going away and leaving their homeland behind. You can imagine it. But God's given Habakkuk a message to be remembered for time and for all eternity. He says, I want you to write it down. This is a message. This is something important. You might have to wait for it, but it's something that's important. And then we come to verse four. 
Verse four says, behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Glory to God. The just shall live by faith. Trusting God. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like trusting God. Living in that state of trusting God. Believing him for who he is. Trusting him. It's a wonderful thing to do. The proud seem to be so exalted, so successful and powerful. The proud who seem to be the head and shoulders above the rest of us. To the people of Israel or Judah, excuse me, I'm going to make that mistake all night. To the people of Judah, the Chaldeans seemed head and shoulders above them with a mighty military, with manpower coming all over the show, with endless abilities and endless finances and endless everything, seemed to be so much more successful than they did. And yet... The proud were as nothing. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him. See, God who sees all things, God who knows the thoughts and intents of the heart, to God, these Chaldeans were bent over. They were not standing upright before God. They were bent over. It is as though the proud person is weighed down by his self-reliance, weighed down by his own power, weighed down by his position and accomplishments. Just as the Chaldeans seen their military as the source of their success and prosperity, they were solely reliant upon it for their future safety and happiness. They thought their military would go on for years and it would never have a problem. They would never have any problems. Oh, as long as our army is successful and secure. There's been many countries and nations throughout time and throughout history that have been in the same boat. They thought that their military power and their strength of whatever could carry them along. They thought that their assurance and their own abilities and their own ingenuity and their own learning and their own education would be enough to sustain them. But this is not. What the prophet and we would see as proud, independent, self-reliant people before God, they were burdened by cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. But the just shall live by faith. It's a different way of living. It's a different way of living. Different from the way of the world. Different from the way of the Chaldeans. Different from those around us. What God is telling the people of God is that faith is a vital element to their experience. Remember Habakkuk evoked the name of the covenant keeping God at the beginning of his book. The God who made a solemn covenant with the people of God. Yes, they had been rebellious and stiff-necked, but there was still a remnant and the promises of God had not been fulfilled yet. As I said, this is just before the exile, just before they've been carried away. And here's God saying to him, listen, the just shall live by faith. It's a pertinent message for us today. It's important for us today. It's as important today as it was back then. The just shall live by faith. We look at the world around us and everything that's going on. We can sometimes get so passionate about what's happening, 
politically or, or socially or uh, economically or whatever. We can get so caught up in the things of this world and the cares of it and the worry about it. Oh, what would happen if? Oh, if only this would happen. Oh, God, can you see what's happening to this nation? I know I have been guilty of it. Getting worried about what's going to happen to Northern Ireland. I've been worried about what's happening to our political, uh, political circles, our social circles. Things like that, sometimes the, the more attention you give to them can seem worse and worse and you can get drawn into it. And you can worry and worry and worry about it. And the message from God tonight to us is, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. As I said at the beginning of the message, this is something we're very familiar with. This idea, the the, the phrase, the just shall live by faith. But you don't have to go too far into history to find that this was an unknown phrase. It was something that no one was aware of. It was something that was hidden from the general population. Go back to the 16th century, when all the world, really all of Europe, was Catholic. There was no other religions. There was no other denominations. You didn't have Protestant and um, you didn't have Methodist. You didn't have Baptist. You didn't have Pentecostal. You didn't have Presbyterian. The only church you had to go to was a Catholic church. And that was it. The average level of education was very poor. Most people couldn't read or write. They estimate actually that only about 20% of adult males could sign their name. 5% of women could sign their name in the 16th century. It was very, very poor level of education. It was something that was reserved for the higher echelons of society, for the the, the wealthy and for the, the clergy. They said the only church there was to go to was the Catholic church. The Catholic church held great sway all over Europe. Now, I'm telling you this part, I just want to explore this for a second, just to say, you know what? We have got a great heritage as a nation and as a church. Uh, We've got something that we should really be happy for and proud of that God has given it to us. This realization that that salvation, that, that we should live by faith, that just shall live by faith. In an age where... The, the, the Catholic Church held great sway over all the, of Europe, where they clicked their fingers and governments jumped to their bidding, where kings came to, to visit the Pope at his bidding, when things like that happened. This is the image of what the 16th century was like and before, not just the 16th century before that. The fear of being excommunicated if you raised an objection to what the church would preach. You could be excommunicated. Therefore, all of Christians wouldn't have business with you. Nations wouldn't have business with you if you were excommunicated. So you were kept in line through fear, through anxiety, through pressure. Today, in our day and age, we would say through persecution. Kept in line to follow and believe what everyone else believed. The scriptures are written in Latin, therefore only really accessible to professors and theologians who guarded them zealously. The average priest in those days only had 
probably had a remedial understanding of Latin, a remedial ability to read it. So we cherish, as Martin said this morning, we, we're always encouraged to read the Bible. 16th century, you wouldn't have had that privilege. Would not. That is such a privilege to have it in our own tongue that we can read every day. Such a privilege. The Catholic Church taught then and to a degree still teaches today that the scriptures and the traditions of the church are on equal footing. We have been brought up and raised in the Reformation side of things with the belief that the scriptures are the hold the authority. It is the scriptures that reveal to us everything we should believe and that we should hold dear. It is the scriptures that shine the light onto our path. It shines our light onto our world and onto our society and reveals the truth of it. In those days, the scriptures, since they were locked up in in a sense and reserved only for those who could read Latin, and most people couldn't even read, therefore, you went by whatever the man at the front told you. You were subject to his desires or his calling or his ideas and what he brought out of the scriptures and what the church came in line with. Salvation in those days in the Catholic church was seen very differently from how we see it. It was seen as something that we were, that, that as a, a, at baptism, you were given an adrenaline shot, as it were, of righteousness. And then you would have to do things in order to keep it going, keep the momentum going. There was a few things they seen as meritorious or as worthy of value before God. I see brother down there at the back. He can correct me later. Um, Baptism was seen as primary and key to salvation. The Eucharist, again, a meritorious act, something in which you'd earn a little bit more righteousness, a little bit more of something valuable before God. Confirmation, whenever you would come to confirmation before the church. Reconciliation, which is also confession or penance, was all seen as very valuable things, as meritorious, as it keeps saying through theology. The anointing of the sick and prayer for the sick. Marriage was seen as meritorious. I'm not going to say anything about that. (laughs) It's easy being married to you, dear. Uh, extreme unction or the last rites where you're, the priest or the, the, the minister would come and give you the last rites. All things that were seen as giving you a wee bit more value, a bit more of merit before God, a bit more of righteousness in the pot of your righteousness. And of course, they seen people who were in holy orders or who stood, who were priests or whatever. That was again something else that would earn a bit of righteousness. But it was all about earning. It was all about doing something. It was all about putting your shoulder to the wheel and obtaining something. And that was what it was all about. And you can imagine it, the whip that you, people would make for themselves of religious, you know, and, and even the priests, I'm sure, would whip the people, come on, you know, you need to, you need to earn this. You know, you're not getting into heaven unless you do this unless you, you, you really mean it, unless you say your, your, your prayers, unless you do your penance, unless you do something really good that's, that's worthy of, of one of these things. 
They even got to the point where they started to sell indulgences. Now, this started back when the Crusades started. So you're probably talking, what, 10th century, where they were sending the uh, Crusaders off to fight in the, the Holy Land. And they said to them, by going to fight for the freedom of Jerusalem, you will earn merits before God. And then after a few years, they went, you know what? By sending money to the, to the Crusaders who go off to fight in the Holy Land, you'll earn merits before God. And then as time goes on, this developed into the point where actually, you know what? By just giving money, you can earn merits. By paying for things. Oh, you can offset the weight of your sin by paying for this indulgence, by paying five credits. You know, you, but you can imagine people who don't know any better, who are burdened by this desire, a genuine desire, sometimes a genuine desire to get into heaven, not to go to hell. A genuine desire, and they're being whipped along by themselves and by the priests to, to earn it. Oh, I've got to do something more. I've got, to, I've got to be better. I've got to do this. Waking up every day with, oh, I've got, to go, I've got to go to confession today again because I've got to earn something else. I've got to get a wee bit more righteousness in the pot. I've got to do something more. There's poor, poor people out there in those days and poor people today and all over, in all forms of faiths. I'm not going to pick on the Catholics anymore. But there's people all over the world who are like that who are caught up in a cycle of earning, of working towards, of acquiring, of, of, of fear of, the, of hell. They're, they're working hard to be as good as they can be. And this is the scene into which Martin Luther comes. Now, Martin Luther, as all great reformers, was great in some senses and terrible in others. Men are men. You can't believe everything they say and you can't believe everything he wrote. Just as some of the other reformers, you just got to filter it. But on this, he had a point. Because this verse, this passage, actually the passage from Romans 1, where Paul quotes this, jumped out at him and came alive to him. Something happened when he mulled it over. Um, I've got with me the old favorite, F.W. Borum. Pastor's got this book as well, I'm sure. F.W. Boren put it this way. He describes, I'm not going to read it all because it's a wee bit lengthy, but he looks at it this way. He said there, he talks about three different events and the final one that occurred to him. He talks about it in a way that we can get a glimpse into what they thought in those days. Now, he's writing in the 1900, but, you know, before that, this is the way people looked at it. When this dawned on him that the just shall live by faith, it was the unveiling of the face of God. Until this great transforming text flashed its light into the soul of Luther, his thought of God was a pagan thought. And the pagan thought was an unjust thought, an unworthy thought, a cruel thought. Look at the Indian devotee, or we would say the Hindu. Um, from head to foot, he bears the marks of the torture that he has inflicted upon his body in his fanatic efforts to give pleasure to his God. His, black, his back is a tangle of scars. The flesh has been lacerated by the pitiless hooks by which he has swung himself on the terrible chakra. Uh, iron spears have been repeatedly run through his tongue. His ears have been torn to ribbons. What does it mean? It can only mean that he worships a fiend. 
Isn't it wonderful? We, we worship a loving God. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God who loves us, who cares for us, that he is compassionate towards us. He cares for us. His God loves, him, loves to see him in anguish. He cries, his cries of pain are music to the ears of the deity whom he adores. This ceaseless torture is his futile endeavor to satisfy the idol's lust for blood. Luther made precisely the same mistake. Remember I told you the atmosphere that he was born into? Precisely the same mistake. To his sensitive mind, every thought of God was a thing of terror. When I was young, he tells us, it happened at an Elzelben, somewhere in Germany, uh, on Corpus Christi Day. I was walking with the procession when suddenly the sight of the Holy Sacrament, which was carried by Dr. Stappitz, so terrified me that a cold sweat covered my body and I believed myself dying in terror. Petrified to offend God. Petrified that he wasn't going to be good enough before God. All through his convent days, he proceeds upon the assumption that God gloats over his misery. His life is a long drawn out agony. He creeps like a shadow along the galleries of the cloister, the walls echoing with his dismal moanings. His body wastes to a skeleton. His strength ebbs away. No more... Uh, on, one, on more than one occasion, his brother monks find him prostrate on the convent floor and pick him up for dead. And all the time he thinks of God as one who can find delight in these continuous torments. The just shall live, he says to himself, by penance and pain. The just shall live by fasting. The just shall live by fear. The just shall live by fear, Luther mutters to himself every day of his life. The just shall live by faith, says the text that breaks upon him like the light from heaven. By fear, by fear, by faith, by faith. And what is faith? The theologians may find difficulty in defining it, yet every little child knows what it is. Bishop O'Brien said this, they know, who, uh, they know what is meant by faith in a promise, know what is meant by faith in the gospel. They know what is meant by faith in a remedy. So they know what is meant by faith in the blood of the Redeemer. They know what is meant by faith in a, visit, a physician, faith in an advocate, faith in a friend too. So what is so, then, so they know what is meant by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him. Can you imagine the, the, the shackles falling off Luther's eyes when this text came alive to him and he no longer had to go through this slavish endeavor to try and acquire righteousness, to try and acquire something? It was given to him freely as it is given to us. The truth that the just shall live by faith was as revolutionary to Luther as it was as revolutionary to Habakkuk. And when Paul wrote it, it was as revolutionary to the church, early church. And whether we are caught up in earning 
salvation and earning favor with God or in doing things in order to please God or whether we are caught up in a system in a world that is, is full of so many strifes and abuses and, and things like that there, it, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what end of the spectrum we look at, whether it is an attempt to please God through religious activity or whether it is in uh, things not going the way we thought they would, not going the way they should go. Things come upon us and against us that are a burden whether it is an effort to acquire something from God religiously or whether it is something that is not going our way, society turning its back on God. So what does it really mean? The apostle Paul was in harmony with Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. Faith in God faith in his completed work, faith in his promises, faith in, faith in his covenant, faith in his faithfulness to the covenant, faith that he was coming back again, and faith that what he said will come to pass. Faith in God. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith trusting God regardless regardless of what you're told by society regardless of what you're told sometimes by your own emotions regardless of what you're told by someone who seems to be an authority over you the just shall live by faith it was as true in Habakkuk's day as it was in Luther's day as it is in our day to have that confidence and that trust in God, trust in the God of the covenant, that he is going to keep the covenant, that he is going to remain faithful to what he has told us, that he has promised us, trusting in him regardless of what goes on around us. We trust in him for salvation based on what? On the word of God. Someone gets up and preached the word of God or, or told us in a private conversation about Jesus and about our sinful nature before God. And what did we do? We responded to it because we believed it. We responded because we believed it, because it was true. There are many faiths out there, many beliefs, many religions out there. And having faith in something doesn't matter, a hill of beans, unless, you, unless what you've got faith in is worth that. All these other religions, all these other ways people are living their lives without God, at the end of the day, they'll be bent over before God, just as Habakkuk see the Chaldeans. At the end of the day, they'll be weighed down by the cares of this world, be weighed down by religious practices. And when they stand before God, they'll be bent over and they will bend the knee before him. But the just shall live by faith that continual state of trust in him and in his covenant with us. Because he has a covenant with us. We forget that he has a covenant with us. Habakkuk was ready to evoke the name of the covenant God. To say, these are your people, God. These are the people in covenant with you. We should be confident in that covenant. 
covenant he has with us because he hasn't abandoned it. He remains faithful. Elwell, the, uh, um, in his commentary, says, or his dictionary actually at this time, says, faith rests on divine testimony. Beliefs as such are convictions held on grounds, not of self-evidence, but of testimony. Whether particular beliefs should be treated as known certainties or doubtful opinions will depend on the worth of the testimony on which they are based. The Bible views faith's convictions as certainties and equates them with knowledge, not because they spring from supposedly self-authenticating mystical experiences, but because they rest on the testimony of God who cannot lie and is therefore utterly trustworthy. Praise the Lord. He cannot lie and he's utterly trustworthy. In other words, the convictions held by our faith based upon the testimony of God's word and grounded in God's character, transform these ideas in the scriptures into certainties we can take to the bank. Praise the Lord. Regardless of what goes on around us, regardless of what society looks like, regardless of what happens in our political sphere, we can trust God. We can have faith in him because he's still our God and he's still in covenant with us. You know, these, these things were written and happened over time and have happened over and over again. Someone has come along and has reread the scripture and it has come alive to another group of people, to another church, to another community. And it's as important today as it was back then that the just shall live by faith. Faith, trusting him, trusting him every day, trusting him that he will abide faithful. The world wants us to trust our senses, to trust everything we read, everything we see, or else to question everything and to doubt everything, to be unsure about what God has told us, to be unsure about his words, to be unsure of the things that we are certain of. But God is saying, listen, these things happen and they'll keep on happening. They've happened to my people throughout time and going back to the beginning, people have always had a reason to question and to be, to be, to doubt. The world has always cast these things up in different forms and different guises. But God has always said to his people, he might have only articulated it in this phraseology, in these words to Habakkuk, but the truth has always been true. The just shall live by faith. Walking along every day, no matter what's coming this week and I'm in our own personal lives, no matter what we're facing that comes against us, that will cause us to be confused, will cause us to doubt, might cause us to panic and to be afraid and to worry about our, our lives and our, our, our families and our future. God is saying, trust me. Keep living by faith. Keep walking that walk. Keep talking that talk. The just shall live I can remember I was over there in America there a couple of weeks ago with my brother and uh, we went to the shooting range. It wasn't the shooting range, it was a bit of ground out in the, out in the middle of nowhere and we were shooting. And my brother, he's got a, he's got a couple of guns and one of his guns is a nine millimeter gun. And I, I'd shot guns before and he says, this is it. And I was going, oh, it looks like something from a movie, you know. And he says to me, he'd done his conceal and carry license with the local council, local government. So he was allowed to carry it concealed on a holster on his hip which 
it didn't really impress me, but it impressed them over there. And it was a nice looking gun, you know, engineering, whatever, you know. Um, and he showed me the gun and he says, the thing about my gun is that there's no safety. And I'm going, well, hang on. I was paranoid the thing was going to go off, but he assured me it wouldn't. But anyway, he says, now when you hold the gun, the pistol, he says, you hold your, he says, your finger lives here and it visits here. It lives here on the side of it and only visits the trigger. As a Christian, our lives, we should be lived in faith, in trusting God. It should be lived that way. We should be living, trusting God. And sometimes we might panic and we might be discouraged and we might visit fear, we might visit doubt, but we should be living in confidence. We should be living in that place of, of hope, living in that place where we believe God and believe his promises, living in that place where we expect God to do what he said he was going to do. We should be living there. Yes, we're going to visit here, but we should be living there. No matter what happens this week, what happens in our own personal lives, and things happen in our lives. I've been talking big picture stuff here. I've been talking about the world around us and our society and, you know, my fears about, you know, direct rule and, oh, abortion's going to come in and, oh, gay marriage and all these type of things are going to be caught up in. And I've, you know, worried about those type of things. But God's saying, don't worry. Don't worry. Walk in faith. Believe me, the just shall live by faith. Trust me, no matter what goes on around you. In our day and age, we can face so much, so much that comes against us, and even sometimes subtle persecutions for our beliefs and relationship with God. At every hand, it seems sometimes that our enemies are waiting for us to, in Habakkuk's day, they were going to plunder the household, and they're coming in. The enemy's waiting on us. Sometimes we can feel, more and more in this day and age, we can feel that they're waiting to pounce on us. It may not be to take away our wealth, but it is to find fault with us, to find cause against us, to shame us or embarrass us, to belittle us or to ruin our reputation. We are getting to the time, and it is here today, I would say, where it's open season on Christians, and it seems to be getting worse. We faced much in our day and age, which... Luther would be familiar with. We might not have got to the extreme, but he's, he was very aware of what persecution was, what, what doors closed to people in business because they turned to the new, this new uh, uh, reformation. He was familiar with that. So this message that the just shall live by faith, it's about trusting him. The storm is strong. The wind is howling. The night is dark, but one day, a south wind will blow. One day there will be a trumpet that will drown out the howlings of the enemy in the storm. And soon the morning star will rise to dispel the darkness. Habakkuk got it. He understood it. Can you imagine? As I said, can you imagine? They carved it into stone. The just shall live by faith. Can you imagine they went off into exile? What was sitting waiting for them when they came home? The just shall live by faith. Now, it's a bit of license, a bit of license. I uh, hope you'll forgive me for that, Pastor. But you know what I mean? Can you imagine that? The just shall live by faith. Habakkuk went on to say, I'm just going to read a couple of verses at the end. 
Habakkuk, nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. The Chaldeans were still coming. Corruption was still in the government and they were still abusing the people. And Habakkuk, it says in my Bible, a hymn of faith. And it says, though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, uh, and the, yield, uh, the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The, God is my, uh, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my highways. Glory to God. Do you think Habakkuk understood? Do you think he got it? The just shall live by faith. Nothing's changed, but I'm still the covenant-keeping God. Praise the Lord. So take heart this week. No matter what comes against us personally or as a church or as a society, the just shall live by faith. Not faith in those things, but faith in God. Trust him because he's worthy of it and he abides faithful. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.